What a, an amazing song tonight. Before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer, all right? Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank you that uh, part of what you call us to do as Christians, it's not everything, but part of what you call us to do is to sing to you and to sing for the benefit of one another. Lord, that we might instruct each other in the word, that we might encourage each other. Lord, that we might, through music and lyrics, pray to you and offer up sacrifices of praise for you are worthy of all glory and honor and power. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that um, you've, you've gifted us uh, with voices and vocal cords. Lord, we are not trees. We are not rocks. Uh, we are not even animals, Lord, even though they have vocal cords. Lord, we specifically can call out to you and call your name and speak of the wonderful deeds that you have done for us, Lord, uh, not just in conversation, but again, in song and in music. And for that, we praise you. We thank you for our brothers and sisters who lived long ago that wrote wonderful things about you that we can continue to sing down through the ages. We even thank you now for uh, the church uh, at large, Lord, uh, the many compositions that they have made that we can sing fresh new songs. As scripture says, to sing a new song unto the Lord, uh, we can sing your psalms, we can sing the Lord's prayer. There's so much that we can sing of God. And uh, Lord, it's all part of uh, us giving you glory, and so uh, we do that now. But I pray that as we uh, look at the life of one who wrote another hymn, that we would be encouraged, um, that we'd uh, be grateful for those who have gone on before us, that we learn about what these songs have to teach us and how they encourage us and how they direct our hearts and minds towards you. And may you be glorified um, in it all, Lord, even as we listen to music, um, not just for enjoyment, Lord, but for edification and uh, May you be glorified, may we be edified, and uh, Lord, may, uh, may the church be better for it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, tonight's hymn is called Blessed Assurance. Um, this was a song that we introduced maybe about a year and a half ago to our church. I grew up singing this hymn with an organ and a hymnal, as most people do uh, when it comes to hymns. But in the Baptist church that I grew up in, and I know many of you have different backgrounds. Some of you grew up in non-denominational churches, maybe charismatic churches. Um, but uh, we grew up singing a handful of songs written by a lady named Fanny J. Crosby. The songs that we sang among them, I mean, we had a hymnal full of songs, but the songs that we sang by her were songs like, Praise Him, Praise Him. Uh, there's another song called, To God Be the Glory. She also wrote, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Tell Me the Story of Jesus, along with Rescue the Perishing. Jesus is Tenderly Calling, and of course, Blessed Assurance our hymn of the evening. Now, out of the songs that I just listed, is anybody familiar with those titles? A few of them? Who said no? Albert? All right. Uh, let's see. See the hands. So some of them are, rec are recognizable, right? <clears throat> uh, they're very popular hymns. Fanny J. Crosby had an amazing influence on uh, the church uh, worldwide. She was born in March of 1820, and she died February of 1915. She lived to be 95 years old. It is, a, it is believed that she wrote anywhere from 5,500 to 9,000 hymns. That is a lot. And there are songs that are still being discovered that are written by her that people didn't know were written by her. She used over 200 pseudonyms 
which is why there are a lot of songs out there that people don't know that she wrote. Um, and so uh, there are many songs that are, are not necessarily attributed to her because of people using pseudonyms. If you don't know what a pseudonym is, a pseudonym is a fictitious or a, a fake name that an author might use to help hide their true identity. Now, people don't really use pseudonyms a whole lot nowadays. People want all the fame and all the glory for whatever songs they write, and they definitely want all the money. But authors of old, they might use pseudonyms for a number of reasons, depending upon the nature of their works. Sometimes people use pseudonyms because of fear, like somebody might retaliate them because they they write a specific work about a a particular opinion or political view. Maybe some people just desire to remain anonymous. They don't want the attention that comes with it. But in her day, the use of uh, pseudonyms was a common practice, and it helped get more of people's works published for that author. Some of her pseudonyms included Miss Grace J. Francis, so if you ever see a, name, a hymn by her, uh, by that lady, that's her. She wrote uh, by the name of Lydia Baxter, Robert Bruce, uh, even under a guy's name, right? Because more likely, because this, uh, she lived several hundred years ago, um, songs may have been more published because it was a guy writing it, right? Those were the times. Uh, names like James L. Black, Lizzie Edwards, Maude Marion, and Ida Scott Taylor. Those are just a few of the pseudonyms and she used a couple hundred, and she wrote thousands of songs, making her one of the most prolific music writers and hymn writers ever when it comes to the church. What's amazing about her being such a prolific writer is that she was blind. All right? Um, I believe there's a picture of her up there. Do we have one, Christian? <clears throat> she was blind. At six weeks old, she got an eye infection And the remedy that the doctor prescribed, because she was not born blind, but she had an eye infection, and the remedy that the doctor prescribed is likely what left her blind for the rest of her life, just at age six six weeks old. Some historians, some doctors think that she may have had uh, congenital blindness, which is blindness from birth. Uh, Regardless, though, she was blind from a very young age, six weeks, and of course she would have no memories of seeing anything whatsoever. When she was just six months old, not long after that, her father died, and her mother and her grandmother ended up taking care of her, and they brought her up to know the scriptures. They helped her memorize long passages of scripture, obviously because she couldn't read uh, physically. At the age of 15, she enrolled in the New York Institute for the Blind, and this is where she learned to play the piano, the harp, and the guitar, right? You got to love a guitarist, right? But the piano and the harp, and you got to love pianists too. We don't have a harpist here, but at age 26, she became part, actually, she became part of that faculty at that institute, so going from uh, just a young kid to uh, learning and then becoming a teacher. And during her time there, she befriended a guy, a young man named Grover Cleveland. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Huh? Yep. All right. One of our who? Presidents. Yes. Elected non-consecutively. You'll have to go over that. All right. Served two terms apart. Oh, served as two terms apart. All right. That, that, that very well could happen again, all right? All right, this is a rowdy class, just so you know you're allowed to talk about anything. And No, I'm just kidding. But thank you for That's a good information, all right, to know. Now, <clears throat> Grover Cleveland, she would dictate her poems to him, and he would transcribe them and write them down for her. 
Eventually, again, this man would go, to become, uh, go on to become the 22nd and the 24th president of the United States. So you guys nailed it. It's abundantly clear that her blindness did not slow her down, right? Anybody here written five songs, right? That's a lot of songs to write. It didn't diminish her ability to make a difference in this world for the kingdom of God. So whatever excuse we think we might have, uh, here's someone who shows us otherwise, that God can use uh, people even with uh, eye impairments. So regardless her blind, of, of her blindness, she, she said, regardless of that, she has said some amazingly profound things regarding uh, her blindness. Now I want you to consider this. I, this just blew me away, and I'll share a couple things with you. The first is this. She says, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. Like, this is what God had planned for me. This is how he dictated my life, right? And she says, I thank him for this dispensation, right? what he's given me, this part of my life. It per- it, uh, if, she says, perfectly earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. Why? She says, because I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I, have, if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. So she's so caught up in God that she, her fear was, if I did see, I would be so distracted. Now, of course, that might be going a little far because we can see the beautiful things that God has made, and those are for his glory as well so that we may rejoice in him. But just something very interesting, and uh, uh, it helps us to see her heart. She was content with where God had her because it allowed her to more fully be faithful to God. So that's what she said. Phenomenal quote. She's saying that she would not have beheld the beauty of God if she had been distracted by the beautiful things that our Lord had made, okay? And so singing praise of, to God is what she did quite frequently. Um, now, when we sing praise as a song to God, or when we're out in nature, of course, we can be moved by creation, um, but we are to be worshiping God, Scripture says, not just with our voices, but with our soul, mind, body, and uh, our, our complete heart. And so it's the eyes of faith, and Scripture tells us that behold God in the Word, and they lift the, the things of Scripture that were taught, they lift us, they lift our hearts and minds up towards God to behold Him and to savor Him and to enjoy Him, okay? Now, she also said this. This is phenomenal as well. She says, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Can you imagine being blind your entire life and the very first thing you see is Jesus? Incredible wisdom, incredible faith, Incredible trust and love for God. Just complete focus on him. That is something to ponder, okay? Consider the oceans that you have seen. Consider the mountains and the clouds, the stars, the animals that God has made, your very own children on the day of their birth, those of us that are parents. Was that not something to behold? There are few precious things more amazing than that. If you're married, your bride on the wedding day, and you're like, oh my gosh, that woman is about to become uh, my wife. Or if you're the woman, that man, oh man, he's about to become my husband, right? But how handsome they, that, that man must have appeared to you, ladies, or how beautiful your bride must have appeared to you, right? You've seen some amazing things, even your own good-looking reflection in the mirror, right? You're like, mm, praise God for that, right? Some, no, not so much? All right, we've seen some beautiful things in this world, 
None of this, according to her, would compare to the face of Jesus Christ. And I think we all have to agree with that. I think when we behold the Lord face to face, because right now we behold him by faith, when we see him by sight, we will have seen the most beautiful person, the most amazing person, the most beautiful sight, the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. The one who was marred beyond recognition and broken for us that we might be reconciled. We will see the wounds that he suffered 2,000 years ago. Those those victory wounds will be there for us to forever behold and what beautiful scars they will be. There will never be anything more magnificent to us than the sight of our Savior. And when Fanny died in February of 19, uh, February of 1915, the face of Jesus is what she saw with her spiritual eyes. I've seen a lot of beautiful things in my life, You have too, but I can't wait till we see our Lord face to face. What an amazing quote. Crosby, though, um, it wasn't like she just only said beautiful things or did beautiful things. There are some things in all of our lives that are uh, different, but I'll tell you that she attended churches from various denominations. And if you understand even just a little bit about these denominations, you'll know that they're all over the place, okay? She attended uh, the Dutch Reformed churches. She attended Episcopalian churches. And she attended Methodist churches. That is a broad spectrum of kinds of churches, okay? All of which are very different. I'll give you some examples, okay? Now, some of these churches and their denominations, we have things in common with and some we don't, which is why we have our own denomination, okay? For instance, Dutch Reformed churches, okay? Um, They're Calvinistic like we are, okay? We believe in the doctrines of grace, They believe in predestination like we do, that the Lord elects those to salvation. But in the Dutch Reformed churches, they adhere to, uh, fully adhere to the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, which they have, there's a lot of great things in those catechisms, the great things that we would agree with, the majority of stuff we would agree with, but they do contain some things that we don't agree with, things like infant baptism, all right? That's why we're not Presbyterian, all right? And so, uh, and perhaps... And this one might be debatable, even the spiritual presence of Christ, right? There's various different views on communion, and some churches adhere to the spiritual presence, not just the physical presence, okay, but there's a spiritual presence in the elements, in the communion elements. Now, some people, when it comes to Episcopalian churches, now, this isn't just about these churches, but I want you to get a, I'm trying to help you get a profile of this lady and how she was pretty much in a lot of different arenas when it came to denominations, uh, some people refer to Episcopalian churches as Catholic light. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, Catholic light. Because Episcopalian churches, right, they separated from the Catholic church, but there's still some things that they believe when it comes to Catholicism, but there's some things that they believe uh, in normal Christianity. Okay, I'll give you an example. Episcopalians believe that the sacraments, are, uh, baptism and communion, they're, they're necessary for salvation. Okay, that's how Catholics believe. But like us Protestants, right, us Reformed folk, they deny that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. Right? Catholics believe that the Pope is the representative of Christ on earth. We, we don't believe that. We, we believe the Holy Spirit is the substitute. Okay? Technically speaking, the Holy Spirit is the vicar, the replacement of Christ. Jesus said, it's good that I go away so that the helper will come. The Holy Spirit is 
Christ's spirit here on earth. And so uh, we see some differences, but she associated with Episcopalian churches, Dutch Reformed churches, and even Methodist churches. And and I'm bringing these up because you're going to see hopefully a little bit maybe where some of this had an influence on the song that we're talking about tonight. Methodist churches, they're called Methodists because they have a specific method or guidelines for achieving spiritual revival experiences, okay? Or holiness experiences. You guys know the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, all right? Great preachers, great hymn writers, but they were Methodists, all right? Now, the Methodists of their time would describe these experiences in these words. They would, they would say that they were strangely warmed, like there, there was like a physical sensation that came along with a Holy Spirit revival experience. Methodists, which uh, this is very good about Methodists, they're extremely concerned with living holy lives. But there are many that believe it's possible to attain a sinless perfection life in this current body. Anybody know of anybody, any Christian that is perfect? No, right? We... We know that's for a future state to come called glorification. We believe we can grow in holiness, and we should grow in holiness, but just ask your spouse if, if, uh, if there's any perfect Christians in the home, right? They will say no to uh, the husband or wife and no to the kids. We know that there are no perfect Christians in our church. While there may be some very godly ones that we aspire to be like, none have attained perfection, okay? So, In each of these denominations, you can see that there are some beliefs that we share some things with, but things that we would definitely disagree with, which leads us to be independent Baptist churches, okay? Uh, uh, We're reformed in our understanding of salvation and our understanding of sin. We don't have a large hierarchy like an Episcopalian church or like Presbyterian churches or like the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, We practice communion and baptism differently. You've never seen us baptize a baby here, right? We've never said that the bread and the wine become uh, the body of Christ physically, that they're transformed. Although they look like bread and uh, and wine, they're physically the body of Christ. We've never said that they're a mixture, but you know, like an incarnation type thing. We've never even mentioned a spiritual presence. Not that I know of, Steve, right? Um, And not that I necessarily have a huge problem with that, but we... Do what Jesus says. Do this in remembrance of me, okay? We are to do it as a memorial meal. And so she was part of all of this stuff. And so, um, I mean, you might think she was even schizophrenic in her theology, right? I don't know of anybody quite like this, that most of us kind of stay within a certain realm. Or if we were part of something, because I know there's a few people that in our churches that came from more charismatic churches, um, and they wanted a different kind of teaching that was... Uh, uh, less experiential and more in the truth, and they're like, hey, so now they're reformed and they're no longer part of that. But really, I don't know a bunch of people that kind of bounce around this much. What's interesting, and, and, and uh, one of the things I want to do in this series is every once in a while I want to bust up a worship myth. Because there's a lot of, you know how the Pharisees came up with rules that had nothing to do with Scripture? They, just, they, were, they thought they were extra godly by adding to God's law. Well, there's a lot of people in Christianity that add to God's commandments, add to Scripture when it comes to how we think about music, how we think about worship. And so I want to bust up some of these myths because they overreach past what Scripture says, okay? 
the Baptist churches that I grew up in, all right, we sang a lot of her hymns. We sang a lot in, in, in the worship services that we had. And it, it sounds weird now when I, when I think about where she's at with all her theology. But um, when you understand uh, the denomination that I grew up in, and I'll tell you a little bit about that, um, it was almost hypocritical to sing her songs. Okay? The reason being is because the Baptist churches that I was a part of, I was part of a movement called uh, the Baptist Bible Fellowship International. We are fundamental Baptists. Okay? We believed in believer's baptism, but we were fundamentalists, and I'll explain what that means. Okay? When you hear the term fundamentalist, the way the media uses it is they think you're a psycho wacko, wacko waiting to bomb an abortion clinic. That's what a fundamentalist is. Historically speaking, though, that's not how the term is used. A fundamentalist is one who believed in the fundamentals of the faith versus liberalism, okay? And uh, anyway, I'm going to bring all this back home. It might seem like I'm digressing for just a minute, okay? But the fundamentalist Baptist churches I grew up in, fundamentalists, again, we, uh, they adhere to the major doctrines of Scripture that teach that the Word of God is infallible, it's inerrant, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, he was crucified, buried, and risen again, uh, the resurrection actually happened. He ascended to heaven. He's coming back. We believe in the supernatural, whereas liberalism denies uh, that kind of authority when it comes to God's word. They deny miracles. They deny the resurrection of the dead. They deny the incarnation. And so that's liberalism in religion. I'm not talking liberalism in politics. And so there was a huge movement uh, in the late 1800s and 1900s, early 1900s, where fundamentalists, that whether they were Baptists or even Presbyterians like J. Gresham Machen, uh, the school that I grew up in had all the major Baptist heroes that fought against liberalism. And so in this denomination, we were trying to separate from liberals and identify what true Christianity was, but they often took their separation too far. They took their separation to say Methodists aren't true Christians. Okay? Presbyterians aren't really Christians because uh, they, they got baptism wrong. And so we distanced ourselves from all these people. And growing up, even though it was never actually stated, it was understood that those are not true Christian beliefs. And so we distanced ourselves from them. Interestingly enough, here we're singing songs written by a lady who's part of Dutch Reformed churches, Episcopalian churches, and Methodist churches, which is why I say I thought it was weird that we actually sang these songs. If they actually took the time to know what she was doing, we might not have ever sung her songs. Make sense? And uh, I think they went too far, the denomination I grew up in. They became focused on hyper-spiritual things like uh, ladies ought not to wear pants. Guys not had to have, should not have hair longer than their collar. And uh, you have to use the King James Bible only. And so rather than adhering to the fundamental scripture, this hyper-spirituality crept up and man-centered laws uh, crept up. And anyway, that's kind of what I grew up in. And so as I'm learning about Blessed assurance. I'm like, that's really odd that we sang these songs in our Baptist churches where we were separatists. Anyway, just some information for you. Um, here we are singing these songs. We sing one of her songs in our church, not a bunch. Maybe one day we'll sing a few more. She's written some really good songs. Um, and I don't know if you know, but over the years, the elders, including myself, we've had conversation with people that are actually hostile towards biblically accurate songs that are written by people who don't believe everything that we do. 
I don't know if you, you know that. I mean, we don't go out there telling people that. We get long emails. <laughs> we have, uh, hey, can we meet with you after church kind of thing? And you're like, uh-oh, what do we do now? Right? Those always, just if you ever want to meet with us, give us a clue as to what it's about. Yeah, just uh, as a friendly note, you're like, I want to meet with you next week, but I'm not going to tell you for a whole week, so you will suffer. Right? Please don't do that to your pastor. Give them a clue. Hey, uh, I, I need some advice on some matters. Or, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, you offended me uh, when you said this, and I would like to talk with you about that. All right? Or my wife and I need some counseling or something, but don't torture your pastor, all right, by doing that. But anyway, people have talked to us about some of the songs that we sung because they weren't written by people who believe exactly like we do. And I think sometimes this Baptist mentality goes a little too far in our separation. You know that we have a church, a charismatic church, that meets here after our church does? And, and we serve them by giving them cheap rent. Barely covers hardly anything. But we believe they are true brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we don't practice the sign gifts. Okay, We're a cessationist church. They're a continuationist church. But we believe they're true brothers and sisters. If, if they weren't, I don't think we would let them meet here. Right? We would not further, we would be doing harm to the kingdom of God by allowing a false church to meet here. In Philippians, you know, the Apostle Paul, he rejoiced that the gospel was being preached by his rivals, true enemies, true unbelievers, all right, who were preaching for attention and for crowds while he was in prison. Philippians tells us this. And he was concerned more about the gospel content being heralded because that is what changes and saves people. He's like, I rejoice that the gospel being preached, even if it's by those jerks over there, okay, those people who don't like me. Of course, he'd condemn what was false. He was not afraid to condemn what was unbiblical, but at times, if they preached the truth, he rejoiced in that. And surely, if Paul can rejoice that enemies of Christ are preaching the gospel out of sinful motives, then we can rejoice that true brothers and sisters in Christ, not enemies, true brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rejoice that they write biblically sound songs, even if some of their theology is different than ours, and we might consider it an error, which is different than heresy. Heresy is damnable, right? I don't believe my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, the true ones that just adhere to, you know, infant baptism, I don't believe they're going to hell, okay? Uh, so there's a difference between error because we all have errors in our theology, but that's different than outright heresy, okay? I don't know if you know John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. They used to tease each other all the time before R.C. Sproul died about who was right and who was wrong about baptism, and they would always jab each other, okay? Um, and so the true brothers in Christ, although different denominations because of different adherences to what they believe Scripture is faithfully teaching, okay? You can work together for the good of the gospel, for God's glory, with people that don't believe exactly just like you, okay? And we can do the same when it comes to singing songs. We don't have to agree 100% with someone to sing their songs. Fanny J. Crosby wrote some good ones that we can sing for God's glory. Now, the reason I briefly covered these various denominations and this background that I went through is that Fanny had close friends in the Wesleyan and the Methodist holiness movements, I'm going to explain that just a little bit. The holiness movement was a movement that believed that Christians could attain perfection and sinlessness in this life. I mentioned that just a little while ago. And that's all prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Prior to our bodily resurrection. In other words, they believed in total, complete sanctification. And from what I read in Scripture, that, that is way off base but she was close friends with people from this movement. Sanctification, that's a big word. Sanctify means to be set apart, 
And so sanctification, we know, is a gradual progression where the Lord, by His Spirit, sets us more and more apart from sin. And we grow to be holy. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He's, the, the title Holy Spirit shows part of what He does for us by making us holy. He Himself is holy. He dwells in us uh, <clears throat> and helps us to be holy. And we're becoming more and more like Christ, more and more like God's image, which if you go back to creation, is the very reason for which we were made, Right? And so salvation is getting us back to there, right? But we're not going backwards, we're moving forward. One day that perfection will come. And that perfection is called glorification, where we fully display the glory of Christ. Right now, we're renewed on the inside. We fight the desire to sin. And as we walk towards God and towards our death, towards the return of Christ, we await that when our bodies will be resurrected or transformed and God will fix us in a state of righteousness where we will sin no more. That's when we become perfect according to Scripture. Total perfection. When we are totally new creations, although we are new now, it's coming in finality. And that final salvation is when perfection happens. The holiness movement believes that you can attain it prior to that. And that's not anything taught in Scripture unless you misinterpret Scripture. I don't know anyone that has attained perfection, and you don't either, okay? You might, and if you're dating Christian and Rachel, you might think, oh, my boyfriend, he's perfect, right? I, I remember thinking how perfect, you know, my wife was when we were dating. She's, she's perfect for me. And then, you, you know, you get married and you realize, wow, I'm a sinner and she's a sinner and we're struggling here. There's no perfection, okay? But wait till you get married and you guys will see otherwise, all right? Now, if, if, if I... I can echo Paul's statement, right? That I am the foremost and the chief of sinners, right? Paul said that. And I would, I would say that there was no more, um, I, I can't, I, there may be someone to contend with his godliness aside from Jesus, right? But the guy wrote the majority of the New Testament. The guy did some amazing stuff. And I, I would think we would say that guy is probably the premier example to follow in the New Testament when it comes to godliness. But I think all of us should echo that statement that we are the foremost sinner, the chief of sinner, when you think inside your head, you know all the simple things you thought today at work. You know all the things, simple things you wanted to say but didn't say. All the simple things you wanted to do but didn't. Nobody knows your thoughts better than you, right? And by that measurement, you are the worst sinner that you know. Even though your spouse sins against you and co-workers do, you don't, you don't see all their thoughts. You can't identify all their motives, but we know how sinful we are. Chief of sinners. In Romans 7, 24 through 25, we see Paul longing to be delivered from the experience of sin. He's longing. Philippians 3, 2, Paul says, or 3, 12, Paul says that he has not yet attained perfection, but he presses on because of the gospel. He's, he's striving for it, but he hasn't attained it. And nowhere does it ever say that he did attain it, okay? Now, this Methodist holy movement it was started by a woman named Phoebe Palmer. Thank you, brother. Phoebe Palmer. She's the, uh, the founder of this movement. And Fanny J. Crosby was very good friends with her daughter. Okay? Her daughter's name was Phoebe Knapp. Together with Phoebe Knapp, Crosby co-wrote the song Blessed Assurance. All right? So... The daughter of the founder of the holiness movement, 
All right, the daughter and Fanny co-wrote this song together. Now you're like, hmm, interesting. All right, we're going to look at the words in just a minute. Before we do that, let me share with you some other interesting facts about Fanny J. Crosby. How many of you know the song, White Christmas? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, right? You guys know who, you guys know who wrote that? Yeah, well, he's, I don't know if he wrote it, but he's famous for singing it. Well, she was related to him. Right? I, th- I believe there's a picture of Bing Crosby up there, probably one of the most famous images of him. Of course, he was not born till later, but nevertheless, she was related to Bing Crosby, uh, same last name, not just because they have the same last name, they actually, uh, Bing Crosby actually descended from uh, her family line. She was very influential. She was the first woman ever, first woman ever to address the United States Senate as she advocated for education for the blind. That's pretty impressive, huh? She performed in the White House Music Room for President James Polk. At age 21, she wrote a eulogy for President William Harrison, which was published in the New York Herald. So she was a prolific author. She was involved in uh, teaching blind students after going to a blind institute. She, she met presidents before they were presidents. She just did a lot of good political stuff and advocating for people who needed help. Now, in 1858, she married a guy named Alexander Van Alstein. And she met him at the New York Institute for the Blind. Okay? So he was blind as well. A year later, they had a baby who died in her sleep. And then that's where she wrote the song, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, from this experience. In 1880, this is a very odd fact about her. She separated from her husband but they did not divorce, okay? During the next 20 years, they hardly lived together and saw each other. For 20 years, they lived separate but not divorced. They would stay in touch. Crosby, she even stated that she still, that they loved each other till the end, but they did not live together. And so when you look at the life of this revered hymn writer, you see some highs and some lows from blindness to the death of the father to uh, you know, separation from her husband, but you see a lot of great things in what she did um, in advocating for the blind and the songs that she wrote. Um, <clears throat> and so you see a lot of highs and lows. And, um, but she didn't write music to live a glamorous life. She wasn't trying to get rich from it. She wrote out of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when it came to her songwriting, she always prayed before she wrote a song and she asked the Lord for help. And her poems and her songs were all composed in her mind and she would dictate them to her husband or another person who would transcribe them for her. But writing songs and poems and advocating for the blind weren't the only things that she was known for. At the age of 60, when most people are thinking about retiring and doing nothing but watching TV for the rest of their life or traveling for the rest of their life, when at that age, 60, blind, she decided to become more focused on home missions and serving the poor. She would speak in prisons, at churches, at YMCAs. She would address the needs of the poor as well. And I don't know if you know, but she also helped helped with our country's first rescue mission, which is meant to help men who are alcoholics. She helped in the very first rescue mission that our country has ever had. And so we see in the life of Fanny J. Crosby, the Lord using one of his own, even with physical limitations even with theological inconsistencies and oddities, such as living apart from her husband for 20 years. Nevertheless, she wrote many songs worthy of singing. 
if perfection were required of you in order to serve the Lord, then none of us would ever serve the Lord. Am I right? So the Lord uses fallible people. He always has, and he always will. And I think that's something that we can take encouragement in. You, there are times when we look at our lives and we're like, man, I am a loser. And it's true, we are the chief of sinners. But that doesn't mean that the Lord won't use us or that we should deem him incapable of still using us. He, it, it doesn't mean it's okay to keep on sinning and doing wrong, but nevertheless, the Lord uses imperfect people. Now, as we look at the lyrics of Blessed Assurance, again, remember, keep in mind that she's friends with Phoebe Knapp, whose mother was the founder of the holiness movement. Phoebe Knapp wrote the music, and after she wrote the music, she asked Fanny what she thought the music was saying. Because sometimes you hear a song and a melody, and words just pop up in your head, and you're like, oh, that fits perfect. Um, I know that to be true just because it just happens, all right? But Fanny said, it's saying blessed assurance. So let's read through the lyrics all the way, and then we'll discuss the theology and its meaning. So blessed assurance, the words are on the screen. Verse one says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. The the refrain or the chorus says, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long, and then it repeats. Verse 2 says, perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. In verse 3, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. So she starts the song by singing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And it's apparent from the onset of the song that Fanny has assurance that Jesus wasn't just some... uh, Jesus wasn't just someone who she'd come into contact with at some point in the future, okay? But she knew that Jesus was with her in the present. And she says, this is a foretaste. Jesus is mine. This is a foretaste, a sampling, a small taste of what is to come in fullness. Do we enjoy Jesus now? Yes. Can you... if, if? and it's, it feels so small sometimes. Like, but that is just a sampling of what is to come. And even in the moments where it feels grand, it is amazing to me in the presence of God to hear his word. and to, We're overwhelmed by it. And that is just a taste, a sampling of what is to come. Indeed, she knew the scripture. Her mother and grandmother taught it to her. And scripture says, while we behold the glory of Christ by, by faith, as we look in the word, we behold Christ. One day that glory will be seen in person. What an amazing time that will be. Mark 8, verse 38. Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. There is a glory coming that we will get to see if we are not ashamed and deny Christ. But if we call him as God and Savior, as he is, we will see that glory. Galatians 5.24 says that we belong to Jesus, right? We belong to Jesus. 
He has bought us. We belong to him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-8 says that we have been given a treasure. And if we've been given something, given something, it belongs to us. Okay? What is that treasure? It is the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we can have the knowledge of God's glory, and that is given to us. The, the, do you know what the greatest gift of the gospel is? The greatest gift of the gospel is not that we get to live forever. The greatest gift of the gospel is not that we get to live in a new creation. It's not that we get to go to heaven in between now and the new creation. The greatest gift is not that you will be reunited with your loved ones. The greatest gift of the gospel is God himself. He is the true treasure of the gospel. Everything that Jesus does for us in the gospel is to get us to be united and reconciled to God so that we may be with him. There will be nothing in the new creation and there is nothing in heaven now more amazing than God. And the Lord gives us the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is ours too. We are not just his, okay? And so she sings some amazing truths. She says that she's an heir of salvation, the purchase of God. Six words that say so much. Galatians 4 says you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. We are heirs of God. Salvation entails God bringing us into the status of adopted children. And because God has moved us into this status, we were formerly slaves under the law of God, imprisoned because we have sinned against God, slaves of Satan, but the Lord has sent Christ to redeem us, to buy us out from under the slavery of the law so that we could be children of God and thus heirs of God. That is the salvation that Fanny was writing about based on Galatians 3 and 4. Revelation uh, tells us this in verses five, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, right? It says, they sang a new song. You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God by your own blood in every tribe and language and people and nation. You purchased. We are the purchase of God. You must remember that there is nothing more valuable in this universe than God. And Christ gave his very lifeblood to purchase you. The most expensive thing in this universe, the lifeblood of Christ, was given for us. The Lord paid a great price to secure your eternity with him. That is something we're singing about and rejoicing about. She continues on to say, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And John 35 says that unless you've been born of the water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And so these are echoes of scriptures that she knew, washing his blood. Scripture says in Revelation 7, 14, right? Sir, you know, he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Those coming out of the great tribulation, what does it say about them? It says they wash their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we are born of his spirit. We are washed by the blood of Christ, not just those coming out of the great tribulation, but all those who know Christ as Savior. It is only the blood of Christ that can wash us clean and forgive us of our sins. His death instead of ours. His life instead of ours. And so verse one ends, and then the chorus or the refrain all right, turns from, theological reflection to personal adoration of the Savior. What does the chorus say? It repeats it twice. It says, this is my story. 
This is the testimony of what God has done for me. And this is my song, singing about the one who was, uh, who was crucified for me, right? Washed in his blood, who was born uh, by his spirit. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Now, has anybody here ever praised the Savior all day long without fail? Right? Probably not, right? We probably had moments where we failed. So I don't know if you can kind of feel some of the, the holiness movement, right? There are times where we can say, though, I did praise God all day, throughout the day, and I was consistent, and I praised him, and yeah, uh, my attention was sidetracked for a little bit, but then I got back to rejoicing and enjoying the Lord, and so it's not wrong to say that I praise God all day, okay? It's not an exaggeration. You can have good days where you do that, and there are perfect moments where you praise God. There are perfect moments when you obey God and you submit to God, as we'll look at in the next few verses, okay? And church, I don't know if you know, but this is how doxology and worship must flow. Worship singing, worship living, must flow properly from an understanding of what God has done for us to save us sinners. If you don't properly understand what God has done for you, you won't praise him properly. And that alone, what he's done for us, it's revealed in his word. We don't instinctively know it, all right? We are not holy enough to praise our Savior all day long, and I'm not, but I need the Word to help me get better at that, okay? And so it's important that we be in the Word with others, with it by ourselves, as a corporate church, um, and hopefully we will grow to Lord, love the Lord more and more throughout the day. But there are certainly days where we are consistently praising Him, um, even though we have moments where we fail throughout the day, okay? Now, as we move to the second verse, you'll see that the first line... Perfect submission matches the third verse, those two words. Perfect submission, it says perfect submission, okay? And when you know that she was close friends with the daughter of the founder of the holiness movement, you begin to wonder if that maybe had an effect on the lyrics in the passage. Again, um, we know what that movement was teaching, um, but I don't necessarily think that that, uh, that those words perfect means that she thinks she attained perfection. Are you with me on that? Okay. Just because she uses the word perfect, you might be tempted to think, oh, she thinks she's perfect. I don't think that's what she's saying, okay? The Lord calls us to be holy because he is holy. Uh, but that call to holiness doesn't mean that, that, uh, that we are capable of being perfect now. We understand that. We already talked about that. Salvation is past, present, and future. We know that there's a glorification coming. There's sanctification now. Justification where God has pronounced us righteous and we are forgiven. Um, there's a whole sphere, past, present, and future salvation. Nevertheless, future is coming where we will be perfect. We understand that, okay? Um, <clears throat> but what I think she's saying here and, uh, is, is what we know to be human experience. Are there moments when you perfectly submit to the Lord and, and you're tempted to do something, whether it's be rude, you know, mean to your children or rude to your wife or your husband or you're tempted to take a shortcut at work or do something improper and you are reminded of the scripture, the Holy Spirit's nudging your heart and you're like, I'm going to yield to God. And you perfectly submit and you don't do that sin, right? You were perfect in that moment. It doesn't mean you're perfect completely, all right? But when you have perfect submission, you're like, whew, you got perfect delight, okay? And so that's what she's echoing here. She says, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Now, I don't know if you know how clever she is. She cannot see, okay? 
But she says, visions of rapture, visions of joy are what I see. I see it in my mind's eye. There are visions of joy. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. So she has this vision of angels descending, right? Because she knows Christ is coming, right, with the, with the angels. And she says, these, these visions, these these things that, that I see in my mind's eye, right? She says, they're but echoes of mercy and whispers of love, okay? Now, that's a poetic way of saying something beautiful. When you recall what Scripture says, what is happening? Scripture is reverberating in your mind. It is echoing in your mind. When Because there are times when we get a... I don't want to say like an Isaiah vision of God in heaven, but we can mentally envision God in heaven. We don't know what he looks like. We can envision the 24 elders around the throne and all the uh, amazing beings that might be worshiping God. And we might have, they're not perfect images, but all of a sudden we realize, yeah, I learned that in the word when Pastor Steve was teaching about that in Revelation, right? And you're reminded, oh, the central piece of that is all going to be Christ, the lamb who was slain for our sins. And it's reverberating in your mind and it's reminding you of where we're headed. Those are echoes of mercy. The word of God reminding us of what God has in store for us. They're whispers of love. It's the, the word of God reminding us and talking to us and whispering to us what he has achieved for us in the gospel. And so she has these joyful visions, although she cannot see. And then verse three says, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my savior am happy and blessed. And to me, this has the whiff of the Beatitudes where we live a flourishing life when we submit perfectly to the Lord. And really, when Pastor Steve, if you didn't hear the the sermons on the Beatitudes, go back and listen to that because there is a distinct way that the Christians should live that should allow them to flourish as they submit to the Lord and as they submit to the lawgiver, Jesus Christ, in the new covenant. He gave his law, and when we live by it, we live a flourishing life. And we, are, we live at peace. All is at rest. We can have turmoil all around us and be happy in the Savior that I'm obeying God. I'm at peace with God. I'm submitting to him. Although things are crazy, I, I can chill and I can enjoy my Savior. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. I'm happy in Jesus. And that's where our focus ought to be. And then look what she says in the last part of that verse. Watching and waiting watching and looking above one who cannot see is watching and waiting looking above waiting for her savior waiting for her savior filled with his goodness lost in his love yep and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord some will do it with a bitter heart let us do it with the heart that she had lost in his love, caught up in the joy in Jesus Christ. And so as this song sings, we see where her heart is fixated, watching and waiting. 2 Timothy 4, 8 says, There reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but all to, those, uh, to, to all those who love his appearing. And she loved his appearing. Remember that opening quote? When I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to see is my, I will ever see, these blind eyes will ever see, is the face of Jesus. And you can hear it in her songs. 
She loved the Lord. She wrote based on good theology that we ought to submit perfectly to the Lord. And there are moments we do, but we're still watching and waiting. We are longing for that time when he comes. Okay? So truly, if there's anything this song expresses, it's that we should be utterly fixated on the grace of God and the return of Christ, that we should be constantly fixated on the Savior. We should strive for holiness. We should strive for perfection. Be perfect, right? Be ye holy. Why? For I am holy. Because we are imperfect, it is not an excuse to be okay with our sin. We should strive for perfection. The Methodists are right about that, but they're not right that we can be perfect in this current state of life, okay? So that's why we can sing that we're filled with his goodness, okay? May he capture our hearts too. Church, let us pursue this assurance, this blessed assurance. Let us pursue that Jesus is ours and have the utmost confidence because Hebrews tells us that if we, uh, if we, uh, let me read to you scripture, right? Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. Keep pursuing it, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Keep pursuing this full assurance concerning the hope that you have that's coming. Why? Be confident of it. Know that you have it, salvation in Christ so that you won't become lazy, so that you will demonstrate submission to the Lord, right? And be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Don't give up. If you don't persevere to the end, you will not be saved. All right? The Lord saves and keeps those saved who he has uh, sent his son to die for. But we are encouraged to pursue this full assurance all right, concerning this hope that we have so that we won't become lazy, uh, but we will be imitators, again, of those who are going to inherit the promises of God through faith and perseverance. And so <clears throat> may that be our law in life. May we push forward towards this assurance, this blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. We're going to listen to a couple of songs. Um, one, uh, well, same song, but two different versions. The first version is for you country singers, okay? Uh, the first version of this hymn is written by a country singer named Alan Jackson. Anybody familiar with Mr. Alan Jackson? All right, we got some boot scooters over here, right? About to boogie and get down to blessed assurance, all right? I'm not a country fan, but I know that some of you will appreciate it. The whole song is less than two minutes. Christian, if you could give that a play. Thank you, brother. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine Heir of salvation, purchase of God Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood This is my story, this is my song Praising my Savior all the day long This is my story this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my side. Angels descending, 
ring from above Echoes of mercy, whispers of love This is my story, this is my song Praising my Savior all the day long This is my story, this is my song Praising my Savior all the day long Praising my Savior all the day long A cappella meaning without words, without music. I don't know if this group is still around, but I can tell you that when I was in Bible college in the in the mid '90s, uh, this was a, a huge group, and uh, I um, I haven't owned a CD since 1996 by this group. But uh, I had never heard of this version of the song until a few days ago. You might like it, you might not. Doesn't matter. It has a Bobby McFerrin feel. I'll tell you that. You know the guy who wrote "Don't Worry, Be Happy." It's going to feel like that, I'll just tell you that much. But I just want to expose you to some different styles in which hymns have been sung, and you can do it in any number of styles for God's glory. So after we listen to this, we'll end our time in singing the song together. So just play a couple minutes of this, Christian. your style or not, but uh, whatever flavor you like. At our church, we have a, an acoustic version that we sing, um, so we don't get too crazy with it. We don't have any country singers or anybody that uh, sounds quite like that. But you got a question? No, I just want to say thank you. All right, we'll get you up here, and uh, you can help out with that. All right, no, no? All right. So we need a we will uh, we need a, a nice bass vocal to be like doobity boo, right? But uh, Christian's gonna come up and uh, help me play this, and uh, let's sing this song together.